Just a reminder that Big Mood, Little Mood with Daniel M. Lavery happens twice a week. Slate Plus members get an additional mini episode or Little Big Mood every Friday. Sign up now to listen at slate.com slash mood. Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Daniel M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is my wife, Grace Lavery, a writer and academic who lives in Brooklyn. More specifically, she lives with me in Brooklyn, but uh, (laughs) I I don't suppose that necessarily needed to be included in your bio. Grace, welcome to the show. Did I put that in my bio? I mean, it just says you're a writer and academic who lives in Brooklyn. Right, yeah. I I added the specificity. That's right, but what's, what's strange about that to me is that I considered including that exact same joke and then decided not to. Which is wonderful. It means that we're on the same page as it comes to like cheesy one-liners that we deploy and then feel immediately self-conscious about. That feels right. I usually don't feel self-conscious about patter. Yeah. But um, maybe I make you feel self-conscious. I'm a born vaudevillian, and I think we would have had a, a really good sense of like give and take. Um, I say, I say, I say. I don't know that that's exactly the kind of vaudevillian we would have been. What kind of vaudevillian are you? I. You know. I, I want to say like George Burns and Gracie Allen. Yeah. But I don't actually listen to enough of their stuff to know if that's mm-hmm. true. I just like the idea of the two of them. Um, it seemed like they were both really famous and everyone sort of liked them for being married. Yeah. Which is the sort of like easy, soft cred I want. You you want cred for being married. Where it just feels like such yeah. an easy, like, to me, their careers just seem like a series of layups. Like people just really seemed mm-hmm. to love them for making some very light jokes. Yeah, it's like of, the, the power couple of an essentially powerless environment. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. that's what I hope for. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Well, I'm excited. It's been a while since we got to have you on the show, but I think some of my favorite episodes have been the ones that we've gotten to do together, uh, both before and during our marriage. So I'm excited too, especially because we're, we're continuing the overflow from the Dear Prudence mailbag. So Jenny uh-huh. has once again very kindly provided us with some really top-notch questions. So she gave us some crackers this time. She did. She said this time, she said, I'm, I'm giving you a lot that I've been like saving because I couldn't quite figure out how to answer them. Yeah. So these may be a, a little bit more complicated than yeah. usual. And this this first one, I think especially, uh-huh. feels like just such a perfect um, test of like, who who do we want to like assign sympathy to? Yeah. Is there a way for these two people to think about their childhood that's not who was victimized, who wasn't, who right. deserves sympathy, who doesn't. Yeah. Um, that that I think there's kind of uh, getting in the way of the possibility of even just sort of like, I think maybe the best goal for the letter writer and, and her brother would be like peaceful, mm-hmm. neutral acknowledgement of one another's existence and then kind of mostly going their separate ways. Right. Yeah. But I would like that for them. Yeah, for sure. So hopefully we can help them get there. The mm-hmm. subject line is just bizarre brother, which again, just really lets us know where the letter writer is coming from. Yeah. I'm a year older than my brother. Growing up, I was the quiet, mousy girl who ate lunch alone. My brother had to be the center of attention, whether good or bad. He would act out in random and bizarre ways. He'd pretend to be a vampire and try to fake bite people, or he would pretend to have Tourette's syndrome, or he would go up to a girl and suddenly start talking about her ass in a cartoon voice. Nothing that my parents or the school counselor said seemed to make a dent in his behavior. He was constantly in trouble and a target for bullies, and I got tarred with the same brush. No one wanted to be friends with the sister of the school freak. 
My first year of high school, I was finally able to reinvent myself and at last made friends. I didn't need to hide anymore. Of course, my brother had to ruin it. I told him to leave me alone at school. Instead, he came up to me in the cafeteria while I was eating with my friends, said, Oh, da, darling, and tried to sit on my lap and kiss me on the lips. I'd never been more humiliated. I pushed him off me and punched him in the face. We both got into trouble. My brother whined and claimed it was just a joke. I told my parents that I refused to go back to school with him there. They ended up sending me to live with my grandparents out of state. Since then, I rarely go home or see my brother. He ended up getting expelled and didn't graduate. He moved from job to job while living off of our parents. Recently, he sent me an email about how I, quote, bullied him as a kid. It was a nonsensical rant full of self-pity and exaggerations and excuses for his behavior. Do I respond to it? How should I respond to it? Yeah. Yeah. You know, two really straightforward questions. Mm -hmm. Do I respond to it being the first? Um, Straightforward, but addressing objects that aren't necessarily included in the in the lead up for example you know if we decided that your brother was a dick that would not mean that you had to not answer his email or answer his email or say this or that it's sort of not relevant the question that is relevant when wondering whether or not you should respond to the email is do you want to continue a relationship with him and if so on what terms but at this point i'm not at all sure that you do or that the letter writer does i often find myself doing that flip but yeah I'm not entirely sure that letter writer does uh, want to continue a relationship. However, family estrangements are hard, and they're especially hard if you um, establish a boundary or draw a line that you're not really able to keep or that you don't want to keep. You know, so in this case, whatever you do, I, I would only send a message saying, please don't contact me again if you really are fairly confident that you'll be able to hold that line. Otherwise, I think you're going to be borrowing trouble from the future, as they say. and. Um, so that's my first thought about that. I mean, the the question that seems more ambient here, which is not a question that you ask, but seems to be the question that you are framing or building towards is, does my brother have a case against me? And in what courtroom, the courtroom of mom and dad, the courtroom of public opinion, the courtroom of dear prudence or, or, or a podcast, um, in what courtroom could such a case be made and articulated and then responded to and defended against. And so more than most other letters of this kind that I've seen or heard coming through this show, this one really does feel like the opening statement of a trial. Um, The facts as agreed by all parties are as follows. And so, yeah, again, my question would be, what is driving that need for recognition, for some sense of justice? And again, those questions to me seem primary to the question of does my brother have a case, it seems it seemed logically prior to the question, does my brother have a case against me? Because we don't really know until we've heard what he has to say. You know, we, we simply can't know. Yeah, I, I think my sense reading this letter was the letter writer underlying this sort of list of grievances, which I think are completely um, powerful. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mean to dismiss it as a list of grievances, was a sort of sense of, these are all the things that my brother did. Um, he mostly seemed to get away with whatever he wanted to yep. do, even though he also, I, I think the letter writer seems pretty aware. I don't think he was happy. Yeah. I don't think he was enjoying himself exactly. Right. But he was allowed to act without thinking or without considering others in a way that I didn't get to. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of was okay-ish 
as long as we could avoid each other. Mm-hmm. But now that I've gotten this email, it felt a little bit less to me like, do I have to respond to this because I want to try to relate to him differently so much as like, and now he's taking away the one last thing that I had. Yeah, which my feeling is, of having been victimized. Exactly. And now the idea that he thinks he was victimized by me feels unbearable. And and so part of me wants to write back, maybe saying all the things that I've said here, here are the ways that mm-hmm. you harmed me. And after this sort of came to a head, I'm the one who had to change schools. Uh, yeah. It seemed to me like that was potentially part of the grievance there as well. Like yes. it wasn't even that I was allowed to stay with my friends. I was sent out of state. Yeah. And and now he's going to go around thinking or potentially thinking that I agree with his assessment if I don't write back Yeah. versus the sort of fear of, if we just get into a fight about this where I say, well, here's all the things you did to me. And then we both just yell at each other about how we're mad at each other. And then right. we don't get anywhere. Would that have just been a waste in yeah. my own time? I mean, can you live, I wonder, with the possibility that this person sees your childhood fundamentally differently to the way that you do? This is something I have some experience of, I guess, in the sense that I, I don't have siblings, but I do, you know, I did have people in my family growing up, obviously. And you know, at some point, you know, a while back now, over a decade or so, I had a real conflict when I realized that my understanding of what my childhood had been like was fundamentally contradicted by the experience of another person who was right there. Um, and it felt, it felt extremely disorienting, extremely bewildering, because it seems as though, if nothing else, we should be able to agree on the basics, the facts. And I think ultimately that facts are much more difficult to agree on than one thinks for a variety of reasons. There are a couple of things I want to sort of say, you know, about the behaviors themselves. The first is, and just to echo what you said, Danny, those behaviors are damaging and harmful. It looks to me what what you're dealing with here is a kind of, you know, sort of menacing physical behavior verging onto sexual abuse and sexual assault Mm -hmm. in a couple of different moments. Not, I think, of you know, the very most egregious kind, but certainly of a kind where you deserve to have those experiences and those traumas taken seriously. It also sounds as though you were punished for them. Um, It also sounds as though the way you internalized what happened was that, you know, your family had to make a choice between your brother and you and they chose your brother. Um, And I don't don't know enough about your family to know whether that's true or not. It could be, it might not be. And even even if it came down to your parents just felt like no one else can handle your brother. Yeah. We have to keep tabs yes. on him. Yeah. So it would still make sense if you experienced that as being sent away, but it could very well have been on their end a sense of... Uh, we can't give this troubled kid to this other person. Right. So, you know, I, I really want to underline that these behaviors are, are serious. The harms you describe are significant. And, and I hope that whatever else is happening as a result of all of this work that you're doing around this right now, because you are, the letter itself is a kind of work, um, that you find a way to talk to professionals and friends about those experiences, which strike me as, as potentially profoundly traumatic. The other thing I want to say, which doesn't, I want to be clear, doesn't contradict any of that, is that the behaviors that you describe also seem like they themselves might on some level be associated with various forms of neurodivergence or various forms of mental distress or even trauma. And, you know, to that extent, it may be that now as adults, once that grief work has happened, once that 
the mourning that is necessary, once that rage that you rightly experience um, is, is out of your body and in the world and being held by other people, it may be that you might bizarrely discover that you and your brother were not ultimately antagonists in this, but in a sense, um, coadjutants. And, you know, there's a concept that the um, anthropologist Gregory Bateson developed, you know, nearly a century ago that I find extremely useful for moments like this. And it's the concept of the uh, designated patient. Mm. And, you know, to me, that's a little bit what your brother sounds like here, but it also sounds a little bit like what you sound like. Basically, what Bateson says, and this was taken up and expounded you know, a little bit later by, you know, other kind of like radical anti-psychiatric, radical mental health thinkers of the mid-20th century, R.D. Lang, a major one. What the designated patient says, what, what Gregory Bateson says is that individuals are not sick. Individual children are not sick in that way. Families are sick. And individual members of a family figure out their relation to the collective pathology, the collective dysfunction that um, families sustain. And at some point, uh, the family decides which one of its members, and they say this, they decide this without realizing they're doing so, without discussing it, without it being explicit. They decide which one of its members is going to be to blame. And then that person uh, who is to blame becomes known as the designated patient or is designated as the patient. And that person is the one that makes it into the mental health care system, makes it into the juvenile delinquency system, you know, is essentially scapegoated by the family for other people's problems. I can't diagnose your brother with anything here, but the symptoms that you ascribe to him around hyperactivity, around a kind of... Um, you know, logomania, kind of not exactly Tourette's, but a kind of manic relation to speech or hypomanic relation to speech. You know, these these symptoms can be associated with um, other kinds of experiences and other kinds of conditions. Not that you are in a position to feel compassion for this person right now, and you're not. You shouldn't be expected to, because it sounds to me like you haven't gone through the experience of rage yet. But just to say that. It may be that on the other side of what must feel like an incredibly distressing process now, there may be something like restoration or repair. Yeah, I, I think that makes a lot of sense. One of the things that struck me in this letter was, yeah, two things felt really clear to me. One was that the letter writer's brother clearly had profound needs mm -hmm. uh, that might have involved uh, a need for restrained behavior or a need for being, you know, moved away from somebody that he was frankly assaulting yeah. until he could not do that anymore. Yeah. So I I don't I don't mean to say like he was only suffering and only someone to be pitied yeah. versus he was only acting out and therefore only someone to be resented. Just that it, it's clear that he was both himself suffering yeah. and that he was acting out in ways yeah. that were deeply dangerous and and frightening yes. um, and harmful. Um so yeah. I, I, again, I like you. I don't want to suggest any potential diagnosis here, other than just something was up. Yeah, and is up. Um, yeah. Because he's still experiencing these symptoms now, in one mm -hmm. form or another. The mm -hmm. listlessness that is described, you know, the, the the relation to issues around work, career, those kinds of things, made me wonder whether. Um, and again, I speak from experience here. I'm not speaking from a position of. Um, you, you know, uh, skepticism or outrage, but it just, it does make me wonder whether drugs and alcohol might be part of this story as well. Um, the, 
the behaviors that are being described or the experiences that are being described are fairly familiar to me. I'm an alcoholic and a drug addict myself. So yeah, I, that makes me wonder if that's part of the story too. Yeah. But I think that the the part that I noticed was just um, nothing my parents or the school counselor said seemed to make a dent in his behavior. Yeah. So uh, again, it seems like there's no reason to believe that the parents were not doing their best. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems like their best was fairly limited. Yeah. Uh, and and so I, I suppose what all this is leading up to is letter writer. I, I think that there is room both to acknowledge that some of his resentment towards you in particular seems to be misguided. But I think one potential way that you could respond, if you decide to, like I, I absolutely think if you just decide what works for me and my brother is non-contact, yeah. Previously, that had worked really well for me. The only reason I'm frustrated right now is because I don't like the idea that he has this idea about me, yeah. which is really understandable, but it's probably not something that you're going to be able to fix by telling him, no, here's how you should think of me instead. Yeah. So if you just decide the best thing we can do is not continue like our childhood dynamic, I'm not going to respond to him, I'm going to block his email, that would be really understandable and yeah. would not, I think, be incompatible with hoping he lives as good a life as he possibly can, right. just not not near you. Yeah. Um, or even just for saying, all right, you know, really one of the last times we interacted, he sexually assaulted me in front of the school. Right, yeah, um, no, that's what it is. You know, and since since then, he has not been able to acknowledge why that was harmful mm-hmm. or, or demonstrate a meaningful apology. And therefore, it's not really safe for me to talk to him just yeah. because I think that's a good line if, if somebody, even as a, you know, troubled teenager, even having compassion and wanting him to be well is just if somebody sexually assaults me in front of people and then never apologizes, we don't have we don't have a conversation. Yeah, we don't have a relationship because yeah. that's not reasonable. That's not safe. Yeah, um, and that doesn't mean that he is a monster or should be consigned to the greatest pits of hell or that he could never get the help that he needs. Just that I think it's useful to be truthful about what happened. So yeah, I think absolutely very serious good option is to not respond. Um, if on the other hand you feel like the idea of saying something possibly appeals to you. I think it would be a really good idea to think carefully ahead of time, sort of what would your goals be? How would you know that you had achieved any of your goals? Mm-hmm. And, and what's your exit strategy? Like, let's say you say something that you've really carefully thought out that feels true, but also measured, compassionate, but also, you know, uh, prioritizes your own well-being. Mm-hmm. If you show up, you know, show up as your best self and say mm-hmm. something you feel proud of, and then his reaction is still hostile or doesn't listen or ignores it entirely, do you have a sense of, I think I'd still be able to get out of that conversation. I would then know, okay, we're done. Now I'm going to close the door. Now I'm going to block the emails. Or do you feel like I'd feel totally out of sorts, totally unable to stop fighting, totally like I just need to burn it all down. And, you know, if, if you can't see yourself exiting carefully, even if he doesn't uh, behave reasonably, then I think that's a, another reason not to do it. Mm-hmm. But I wonder if one thing that might be possible is a potential message that both acknowledges, like, I think his real suffering and doesn't even take off the table the possibility that, like, you behaved with, like, real hostility and, like, unkindness towards him as a child. Like, I don't yeah. even think you need to worry about, like, no, I have to protect myself, like, to just say, you know, I got your message. Uh, I'm of two minds here. One is I know that you were suffering as a child. I know that I didn't always react to your behavior in a way that I'm proud of. And even further than that, like 
if it's possible that you sometimes acted in a way that was consciously calculated to hurt him, you might choose to own that. That doesn't mean that you are the bad person, the right. bully, and yeah. he is the good one. But I also need to acknowledge that the last time we were together in person, you sexually assaulted me and that there's a history of your behavior that involves like biting people, bizarre and like frightening discussions of other people's like sexual characteristics. Mm-hmm. Um, and any conversation we would have about our childhood would need to involve those things. Mm-hmm. If you're able to discuss them, I want you to know I'm not looking to demonize you or to tell you that, uh, you know, you don't deserve to feel hurt or deserve to feel safe now. Yeah. But those things happened and they were real and I was afraid of you. Yeah. And and to maybe leave it there rather than go into a lot more. And if if there's any reaction on his end that's like, you know, okay, if you can acknowledge that you sometimes hated me and wanted me away from you and were cruel as a result— I feel like heard enough that I can now acknowledge like I made it difficult <laughs> to be around. Yeah, um, yeah. That might be, you know, again, the goal would not be now you're besties. <laughs> now he's healed. Now he gets a job tomorrow and right. you guys see each other and it's wonderful right. at Christmas. But it might be a sort of like, I wish you well. I wish me well. Let's go be as well as we can away from each other. Yeah. Um, but again, if you listen to that and you're just like, that sounds like a fantasy or a fairy tale, I'm not going to concede anything to him because he will uh, not take it as a sort of olive branch. He'll just take that as a concession that he is right and I am wrong. You know, yes, I, I that's very beautifully put. I think there are two things I, I want to underline um, in what you just said, Danny. The first is that one of the reasons why families are so challenging, I mean, we know that they're challenging. One of them is that no one gets to be just the good guy or just the bad guy. Because in reality, nobody is just the good guy or just the bad guy. In reality, you know, we've all done things that hurt people and we've all been hurt by other people. And, you know, the, these things are all part of what it means to be a person, what it means to, you know, move through the world. And usually we're able to negotiate those challenges or those potential contradictions or conflicts in extremely isolated situations. That is to say, you know, if there is one person who has a grievance against me, who I, you know, hung out with for a couple of weeks back in 2017, Mm -hmm. I can evaluate my conduct during that time. And the way that I was six months before or six months after doesn't really make a difference. And I can, you know, think about what I need to do to repair that situation if I decide that I want to. But if someone says, I've known you since Before you existed, I kind of knew who you were. And every single moment of your life, I've been watching you and I've been fairly close and I've seen you do things that I find monstrous to contemplate. And I've seen you do things I think are incredibly honorable or exciting. Um, and, And that complexity just, you know, is a result of proximity. But then the other part of it that makes it super complicated is just that when we're children, we usually can't quite handle complexity. And, you know, even when we're acting in ways that are harmful to us or to others, we can totally exonerate ourselves and have the most morally simplistic understanding of what we're experiencing. And it's not until we're older that we really get to look back and think, oh, you know, that was a little less black and white than I thought at the time. This is not so much for you. Maybe it's for your brother, but it's more just an observation that you know, the t- we don't have collectively as a society, we don't have good tools for thinking about that kind of moral complexity. And the sort of juridical courtroom model where you're guilty or you're not guilty, you either go with the sheep or go with the goats, you go to prison or, you know, you, you, you're freed. That depends upon, I mean, you know, it, I think it's obviously um, 
<laughs> I don't want to get into this, but you know, I think it it is an inadequate way of thinking about human relations in general, but it's certainly inadequate for dealing with the kinds of human relations that are at work here. Um, and there's no way forward that doesn't involve some degree of murkiness, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So all that being said, if you think about it and you feel like, I'd love to have this conversation, but I just don't believe that my brother is capable of it. Yeah. That would be really understandable. And then I would just encourage you to think about who are people that I could have this conversation with. Yes. Potentially it is your parents. Yeah. Potentially it's not. Potentially it's a therapist, uh, a friend. Um, but for you to find ways to talk about this, I think would be really good and really useful. Yes. There was one other quick thing I just wanted to say, which is related to that. Just to go back to what I said at the start, really you only need to reply if you want to. And, and I, I want to stress desire here. I want to stress the question of want for two reasons. One, because it sounds as though your needs and your desires and your experiences have generally been deprioritized in your life. And that may therefore be something that you find it difficult to inhabit or own. You know, it, what would it mean to say, I want a relationship with my brother, notwithstanding that he did these awful things to me? And if you decide that you don't want that, um, or you you learn through a process of introspection that you don't want that, nobody in the world has a, has a claim against you. No one is going to criticize you for that, I hope. On the other hand, you know, it, you might find that there's something more morally complicated about this, this person did these awful things to me and has never understood my uh, experience of them or even, you know, expressed any curiosity about my experience of them. And yet there's something I can't give up here. Why is that? And, and you, you might feel, and again you know, I'm sort of speaking from experience a little bit here too, you might find yourself feeling frustrated at your own, you know, willingness to give him a shot. Mm. And if that's true, then again, I think I would just encourage you to be patient with yourself, listen to, you know, what you actually want. Um, and what, what are the, what is the line you will actually be able to hold here? Yeah. And I think my sort of final thought here would just be, uh, it would make sense to me that you would feel a lot of anger, both about how your brother treated you when you were growing up and also about the adults in your life yeah. who failed to protect you and others from the consequences of his behavior. And again, none of that is at odds with also having compassion for him as a troubled kid. Mm -hmm. um, but it was the responsibility of the adults in your life to make sure that he did not do these things and and to you know help other kids recover from like the fallout of, mm -hmm. you know, this kid just ran up and like kept trying to bite me or this, you know, my brother tried to kiss me on the mouth in front of everyone at school. That was like humiliating, horrifying. Uh, like, how does somebody help me deal with that? It's yeah. not just, well, you can go live with grandma and grandpa. Like, that's right. not a great way to reintegrate someone after a, a harm like that. Right. Um, and so it just may be that you feel like I have a lot of anger at my brother and my brother is not the person I can go to to get healing around my anger with my brother. Um, might be the sort of best way forward here. So I realize none of that is a, a strong yes or no or how, but I hope that's enough guidance around possible outcomes that you feel like you have something to start with. This one's a classic. Uh, I love the beginning. It, it's such a... We recently, you and I, uh, and Lily, we recently saw... The, the Patty Harrison show oh, yeah. in Brooklyn. Um, and, and we were talking afterwards about how one of the sort of throwaway lines of, uh, I have a lot more conservative opinions than people expect when they see yeah. me was in some ways sort of like 
thematically true of the whole show. Yeah, well, for me, that that's what the show was about. The show's about Ohio, and <laughs> it's about you know the Midwest and you know the 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 affordances and the terrors of the particular form of Midwestern affect. Yeah, all of that is to say, the first sentence of this letter. I, I think is sort of remarkably casual. Mm. Uh, I have been in a relationship turned marriage for 8.5 years. Yeah. Like as if uh, you just sort of one day you woke up and there was like a cocoon around you and you had no idea how it got there. And I think one of my, maybe not surprisingly, but uh, you know, one of my potentially more conservative opinions is I think marriage is a good thing. Yeah. I don't understand why so many people, especially people who get married act embarrassed of it. Right. Uh, or like it's something to be denigrated. Uh, and you, you may remember I didn't want to move in together until we became engaged to be married and I'm glad I stuck to my guns because yeah. I don't ever want to have to move out I don't know to me it's like if you're moving in with somebody you're all in yeah. you're putting all your stuff together yeah. you're going to have to call movers if you break up you might as well get married well, I mean, it, it seems to me like this is the opening onto the narrative of how you proposed to me. Yeah, which I shouldn't do because we're already a little bit over time. Okay, well, fine. Um, but, but it is a good story. It is a great story. But yeah, I just, I think marriage is great. And yeah. I think you don't have to do it. But if you do, you shouldn't act embarrassed about it. Yeah. Um, we're married. We're, I, I think it's true. I love if, being married. If people. anything, I just wish we could also get married to more people. Yeah. Like. Yeah. Anyways. Anyways. Yeah. Subject is maybe Polly. Uh-huh. I've been in a relationship turned marriage for eight and a half years. We have one school-aged child who was unplanned and born a few years into oh our relationship. <laughs> Sorry, I, I missed just, unplanned. Yeah, no, just, <laughs> and now they're at school. A few years ago, I told my partner that I felt compelled to explore my polyamorous desires. He was extremely upset at first, but later agreed that if this was what I needed, then he could try. Several hours into my first date, he let me know that it wasn't going to work for him. I never had another flirtatious or romantic conversation with anybody again. Years later, I see polyamorous couples raising children and enjoying life on social media. I can't help but feel that this is the life I want. I don't know for sure. It could be something that seems idyllic but isn't a match for me. I haven't ever tried it after all. I'm at a place with my marriage where I'm starting to feel displaced, questioning whether I should be here, whether this should be my life. I don't want to leave my marriage in many ways, but I don't know how long I can wonder about the what ifs, what to do. I, I would say I feel equal <sighs> amounts of understanding and compassion for this letter writer as I do impatience. Yes. The whole sort of like, I guess we got married. I guess we had a kid. Yeah. Do it or don't. Yeah. You know, you did it. Own up to it. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, uh, I haven't ever tried it after all. Felt a little like petulant. Like, no, the, the line, I never had another flirtatious or romantic conversation with anybody again. Yeah. It's a little like, all right, break out a tiny violin. I'm sorry to hear that. Like, yeah. You have one partner and a child. That's, yeah. that's better more than, than a, a lot of people get. It's right? better than a kick in the teeth and yeah. like nowhere to sleep at night. Uh-huh. It's not too bad. Uh-huh. Um, but like all that being said, it's really easy to get moralizing and judgmental when someone's trying to talk about polyamory. And so I want to avoid that because I know that I can go there pretty quickly. Uh-huh. Uh, what would you want this letter writer to bear in mind who's sort of like, I guess I got married and now I don't really want to leave my marriage in many ways. Yeah. Like, I, th- I think if anything, this letter writer's sort of relationship to choice is really interesting. That's true. Well, so, yeah, to me, I, th- I think I have a sense of why that is. And I think it's because the question is not, am I polyamorous? Because after all, ascribing identity categories around these sorts of things 
you know, has certain benefits perhaps, but it, um, I think it also mystifies quite a bit. The question is, do you believe that your husband should have a right to prevent you from sleeping with other people? That's what it comes down to. And if you believe that, then you're in a good relationship. And if you don't believe that, then you have to negotiate it. And it sounds to me like you have preemptively agreed that you do think he should get um, that power. He is entitled to that power, but you don't really believe it. You're not happy with the settlement. And there's some part of you that is coming out in these moments of resentment, which is a resentment at, you know, what, what seems to you to be, you know, an unfair imposition of someone else's values. So it it does seem to me that this is only secondarily a question about negotiation. And it is a question about negotiation. Negotiation is a big part of the answer. But I do think it's worth starting with, you don't think he has the right to do the thing that you have been giving him the right to do. And so, in, in fact, that part is not negotiable for you. That part is not, you know, you, you don't need his agreement that he doesn't have that right in order for him not to have that right. Uh, he either has it or he doesn't. Um, you've given it to him, but you want to take it back. I think that's as simple as it gets. Pretty hardcore. I realize it might sound a little hardcore. I don't know. Well, I, I, but I think it's certainly, I think it needs play. Like I think often I will hear from people who will, especially in a position of I'm coming from a relationship that was monogamous and now we are changing that or thinking about changing that. Mm-hmm. Um, it often brings up for people questions of, veto power or you know if i don't like someone that my partner is seeing i want to be able to intervene and i think that often leads people into really tricky territory none of that is to say if you you know move a relationship from monogamous to polyamorous and your partner says i want to sleep with all your siblings and there's just that's it but like i think that when people do try to have veto power like that yeah you've already lost the battle yeah exactly um and and that's a difficult place to be and, as and well. The other part of this is that you can't compel your husband. You don't get a veto on whether he leaves or not. You know, he doesn't get a veto on whether you leave or not. And so again, this is not, you, you know, you're useful to each other insofar as you can agree on a set of shared principles for living together. Not insofar as you can suppress those principles or renegotiate those principles in someone else's interests. You know, so I, I think... I think that you should make a choice and then let him make a choice. I think that's that's basically my my thought about this. And own the choice. And the problem, the reason why I wouldn't recommend going into negotiations first off is it sounds like that's what you've done. And it sounds as though, you know, you've tried to talk yourself out of something that you actually really want to do. And, you know... <laughs> One thing you could do right now, as soon as you know you hear this or whatever, is listen to the song You Don't Own Me by Leslie Gore, right? And see what you think of it. And especially listen to her voice when she sings, I don't tell you what to say. I don't tell you what to do. So just let me be myself. That's all I ask of you. Um, and ask yourself whether that's a, a situation that, if the feeling of sort of like resentment and and bafflement in uh, Leslie Gore's voice is something that you share. And if so, I think you know what you need to do. Yeah, I think that all I want to add to that is, Letter Writer, I know I gave you a little bit of a hard time about the sort of way that you described how you entered into this relationship, how you had a kid, and now how you're thinking about leaving. And 
I think the only reason that I want to do that is I'm worried that you are otherwise going to lapse into like substance dualism. Oh my God. Because there's this. My husband said substance dualism. Fuck me. We live together. I listen to you. I love you so Um, much. You know, I'm worried about whether this should be my life. I see couples, uh, you know, polyamorous couples uh, on, which is also funny. Like, do you mean throuples? Do you mean just the core couples? Polyamorous couples is an odd phrase. Yeah. Yeah. But. Uh, you know, I wonder if that's the life I want. And, and I'll just say, I, I think that one thing that's going to serve you a lot here is not necessarily only doing the things you feel like the moment that you feel like doing them, but owning your desires. Mm-hmm. And so I think framing things like I felt compelled to explore my polyamorous desires. This should be my life. This shouldn't be my life. Yeah, Can get a little bit into this idea that there's a life you should have. When what you mean is there's a life that I want and I am potentially willing to end my marriage Uh and potentially willing to really hurt my husband in pursuing that. And I I think maybe there's a part of you that's going to want to flinch from that and going to want to say, no, I tried to avoid it as long as I could, but eventually the feelings became so big, so powerful, so overwhelming, so unbearable, I was left with no choice. But we are always, always, always uh, making choices. Life is all about choice. Um, if you choose to pursue your desires at the expense of the marriage that you have with your husband right now, you will need to be able to own that and describe that in a way that is not simply one day a tidal wave of desire came right. and took me away. You don't have a poly soul that is making you act a certain way. Yeah. You have you and yeah. what you want. Yeah. So I, I just really want to caution you away from, uh, you know, you may t- decide ultimately that the two of you have incompatible desires for the future and that's a good reason to break up. Mm-hmm. But that is not the same as he is you know, fundamentally monogamously sold and I am fundamentally polyamorously sold. Uh, and that is why we cannot fit together. Um, so I agree so much with that. I, I do too. And I just think, again, you just need to say these things to him. Mm-hmm. You just need to tell him, I know we tried it once. Turns out I don't stop thinking about it. I don't really know what I want to do next, but it is possible that I will eventually decide that I want to do this more than I want to stay married and monogamous. What do you think? And that's going to feel scary and disorienting because likely he will be upset because you have already semi-tried this before. But the alternative, which I think is not unreasonable either, is to decide I want to stay in this marriage and, and not try dating others again. There's no guarantee that if you two split up that you are going to get the social media polyamorous relationship of your dreams. You might find that you date a handful of people semi-casually, but you never find someone that you really click with and you just have a few people you see occasionally and then that fizzles out. Mm -hmm. Um, You may get entangled with another couple or group of people that ends up making you feel like you got hit by a bus. Mm -hmm. Um, You may end up totally alone. So I think you know this, but it always bears mentioning whatever you're seeing from other people on social media. Part of why it looks so good is because you're seeing it on social media. Mm-hmm. And then if you go and live your own life and you wonder, why doesn't look this look like the handful of cute videos I see from like those three over there? Yeah. It's because it's a handful of videos. Um, and I, I know that you know that, but I just really want to stress that because even their life doesn't look like just those handful of videos. Yeah. Which is not to say that they're all lying or making it up. Just... Mm-hmm. The things they choose to record and exhibit are partial. Yeah. Um, so uh, obviously you have a relationship of eight and a half years and a child with this guy. That's not nothing. Um, I would not say, I, I, I don't, I don't want to say either you must pursue your polyamorous desires or you will never be unhappy or 
you must, you know, stick with the one that brung you and put this to bed once and for all. But whatever you do, you really need to think about, am I prepared to deal with this worst case version of it? Like, what's the worst case version of leaving your husband to go and be polyamorous? Yeah. And do you think you can handle that better than the worst case version of staying with your husband and being monogamous? And just, again, it it will just be a different way of relating to people. You might end up meeting people who you're crazy about, but who don't want to be polyamorous. Or maybe they do for a while, and then they meet somebody who wants to be monogamous, and they change their minds. Out there in the world, there are people who will mention on the dating apps that they're extremely into polyamory. And then on date three or four, will change their minds. And sometimes that's because it's the quickest way to get people. And sometimes it's because they change their mind and that's fine. Yeah. Yeah. You really do have to understand, I think, that a lot of people are trying it or considering it for the first time and truly don't know um, how they're going to feel about it until they try it. And just as always, you can't force those desires. So you know, if if you think, man, I'd love to do if I was guaranteed that social media bliss. But like, if you do end up breaking up with your husband and you do end up sailing into this new chapter of your life, one of the things that I think will become absolutely necessary to shed is the sort of default, I backed into this. You will need to be able to talk about your desires and your limits. And that will include being honest when you don't know what they are or when you're not sure what they are yet, or when you think you have a suspicion of where they might be, but you're afraid that they won't get you what you want. Mm-hmm. So you want to try to fudge the numbers. Um, and I say that as someone who has done plenty of that myself. So again, there's no version of your life that you should have. You could get hit by a bus tomorrow and that would be the life that you had. It wouldn't be a question of deserve or not deserve. It mm-hmm. just things happen to people. Sometimes they're good, sometimes they're awful, sometimes they're in between. Um, You will get the life that you pursue and you will get the life that you try to build within certain limits because you can't control for everything. But um, certainly, I would also encourage you, if you do end up getting divorced, to really prioritize co-parenting well and to figure out what are your values when it comes to introducing new partners to your kid. Um, How can you prioritize your kid's stability How do you make sure that you're not just every couple of weeks bringing somebody new around and getting sort of starry eyes and thinking now we're going to be this wonderful nine-person family um, in a way that makes your kid feel kind of jerked around? Um, That's a pretty big question, too, that I think you and your potential ex, potential husband will need Mm -hmm. to also really bear in mind. So I don't know. I feel a little bit school-marmish doing all of this, like own your desires. Think of the children. Only if you are very careful can you earn polyamory. But it is like what you're proposing is like difficult and complicated. Yeah. And it will require a great deal of thought. And right now it seems like you are afraid of that kind of thought and that's yeah. not going to serve you well. I guess that's, I, I guess I see that. Yeah. I also just think nothing is more complicated than trying to justify something that you just don't believe. You know, the monogamous theodicy is, um, is a challenging thing to live. Yes. Yeah. And, and I guess I, I know I keep saying this is my last thought, but it's fine. Um, you know, you say I'm at a place in my marriage where I'm starting to feel displaced, questioning whether I should be here. And I just want you to know that might come up for you in your next relationship if you do leave. Um, so please don't think that if you are just polyamorous, then you would avoid feeling displaced, feeling misunderstood, being eight and a half years into a relationship and sometimes feeling sort of like bored or thwarted by the other person. I think that is inevitable result of human intimacy. 
I don't think it's insurmountable. I don't think it's inevitable. I don't think that means anytime you're with someone longer than 20 minutes, you're going to like be tipped into a pit of like boredom and hostility, just that Mm -hmm. all intimacy eventually introduces, uh, you know, repetition, boredom, and the potential to feel like, why aren't you trying to woo me the way that you used to? Mm -hmm. And that can happen whether you have 12 partners or one. Mm -hmm. So again, this could very well be happening to you again in eight and a half years. So that's not an argument for staying necessarily so much as just nothing gets rid of the problems of domesticity. Nothing gets rid of the sense of I feel less seen by a partner than I did 10 years ago or before we had a child. And, and generally, I think the the best response to that is some combination of being honest with your desire to be met in a different way and also the sort of St. Francis prayer of like, you know, make me more desirous of understanding than to be understood because that's just going to help you be in relationships with other human beings. Yeah. Um, It is so, so easy for all of us to think, why aren't I understood better? And so difficult for all of us to think, why don't I understand others better? You're an incredible husband. Did you know that? I mean, it's easy to say all these things on a podcast. No, I understand that. But, you know, you think about these things consistently and I feel very seen by you, whatever that's worth. I feel very seen by you, and I thank you for that. And I think just one of the things that I really enjoy about this is I like talking about relationships and ideas with you. Mm -hmm. Um, And I like trying to figure out the everyday problems of intimacy and domesticity and Mm -hmm. reflexive patterns of uh, self-centeredness or selfishness or self-seeking and trying to figure out different ways to Mm -hmm. relate to those totally human and understandable impulses that don't require beating ourselves up, um, nor in sort of giving them carte blanche. Mm -hmm. So best of luck to you, letter writer. Uh, I wish you truly, truly, truly the best, um, as well as your school-age child who was unplanned and you don't say anything else about, and I really hope you at least like them. Yeah. Um, The accidental youngster. And maybe you don't. I mean, and you're just like trying to do the best that you can, and I'm not going to yell at you for not loving a child that you didn't plan and I just try to do as right by them as you possibly can. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm oh, sorry also for like assuming you don't love your child just because you didn't mention it in your discussion of your problem with your husband. That's it. Thanks everybody mm-hmm. for joining us for another episode. Grace, thank you so much for coming down and I look forward to seeing you at home later tonight for dinner. Yeah, I'm making bangers and mash. And I hope it will be ready before midnight. Before midnight? Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. I reckon I can do that. All right. Love you, doll. I love you, baby. Bye. Thanks for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe you need some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening.
And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. You might decide that you want to say to your father, I know we've talked about this sometimes. I want to be honest with you. I'm still angry about this. Um, I don't say that because I want you to apologize again. I don't want to leverage that anger in a way that makes you feel like you have to just start each day with an apology. I just want to let you know that that's where I'm at. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean the only thing I feel towards you is anger, but that anger is present and that's not totally healed. And I want to ask if we can just put a pin in talking about that until a little bit later. And then maybe in the meantime, it sounds like he's he's able to be pretty present with you for those conversations. So I think you'll be able to say that to him. That might take some of the pressure off because if you feel like I got to rely on dad to like make me dinner right now yeah. and cover the rent. And then I have to go into a big conversation about my childhood with him. That just right. makes me feel too raw and exposed. It might just be good to put that one off for a while and just focus on how can we be as collegial roommates as possible. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.